Hello, this is Yuri Lepstein, and welcome back to our second episode of Winter is Here. Now, before we dive in, I want to announce some very exciting news. We'll be hosting Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba this Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern for a virtual briefing. He'll be joined by Ukrainian soldiers offering their perspective from the front lines, as well as VIPs, including my co-host, Gary, Alex Vindman, HRF President Celine Bustani, and a host of others. Trust me, it'll be a truly unique event, and I hope you'll join us. So now, on to today's episode. I'm incredibly excited to welcome RDI board member, and honestly, one of the most intelligent people I know, Annie Duke. Annie is a retired world champion poker player and is now a decision strategist who published How to Decide, Thinking in Bets, and is currently working on a new book called Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. Welcome, Annie. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I don't think it'll surprise anyone that this episode will focus on what's happening in Ukraine. But we're going to do so from a little bit of a different perspective. We're going to think about it from the point of view of decision-making, games, psychology, and so forth. So for my first question, I've got to ask what I think might be on a lot of people's minds. Is Putin playing poker or chess? Oh, <laughs> should Gary answer that first or me? That's, a, that's an interesting question. My answer is well known. So I always defend the integrity of my game. Saying <laughs> that, you know, dictators do not play chess because it's a game with the fixed rules and 100% available information. So if people want to look for any metaphor and for board game, they should look at poker. So that's why it's for you to actually to explain whether it's poker or not. And if it's poker, how do you rate Putin's poker style and his strategies? Yeah. So in this case, everyone is playing poker. So Putin is playing poker. Ukraine is playing poker. NATO is playing poker. The United States is playing poker. And the reason for that is that we're working with lots and lots and lots of hidden information. As Gary alluded to, when you're playing chess, it's a game of perfect information. So I can see my opponent's whole position. They can see my position. So what makes a great chess player like Gary is that they can go deeper into the game. In other words, they can look at the board, understand what their possible moves are, see what the possible moves of their opponents are, put a better probability for what the likelihood is that, that their opponent is going to make a particular move. They can then see what their possible moves and response are and so on and so forth. And the more levels deep that you can get into that calculation, the better you're going to be at that game. So that's a little bit of a different problem than what we're dealing with here. So we don't really necessarily know for sure what Putin's intentions are. We don't know what would make him stop. We don't know for sure how serious it is when he's doing things like threatening nuclear war. We don't know how he would really respond to a no-fly zone, for example, or to America de facto supplying planes to Ukraine, through Poland, so on and so forth. So we're sort of having to guess at what that looks like because we just don't have all the information that we need to respond. And likewise, Putin doesn't have the information that he needs in order to understand what our response to any of his moves would be. So this all becomes a forecasting problem. What are the things that I think are in the range of things that my opponent could do here? What do I think the probability of those are? Uh, but it's really in a cloud of uncertainty. So that's really the similar to poker. When I play a poker game, I can't see my opponent's cards. The better I am at the game, I can narrow down what their holdings are, right? So I can make better guesses at what they might be holding, but I can't know for sure. So as I'm trying to respond, I'm really just having to make a forecast and try to figure out what the highest probability of success is for me. So that's actually a really hard problem. So following up on that, this is a question that a lot of folks ask. I mean, I see it in articles all the time, you know, is Putin playing poker? Is he playing chess? What are the implications of that? As you pointed out, you know, everybody's playing poker. Putin is playing poker. What should we take from that? How should that knowledge impact the way we deal with him and respond to his actions? Well, it's about modeling your opponent, right? Honestly, we can take this all the way back to John von Neumann. So for those people who don't know who John von Neumann is, if they know who Russell Crowe is, they actually have a good connection to John von Neumann. So let me explain why that is and who is John von Neumann. So Russell Crowe, as people will remember, played somebody named John Nash in the movie A Beautiful Mind. And John Nash was a game theorist. 
he was studying these multiplayer decision-making problems under uncertainty. His mentor was John von Neumann. So John von Neumann was at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton at the same time as Einstein. People don't really know who he is, but he was John Nash's mentor. So he was actually the father of game theory. Now, he also happens to be the father of the modern computer, and he ran the Manhattan Project. And while he was running the Manhattan Project, which developed the nuclear bomb during World War II, he was writing on the side a book called The Theory of Games along with a guy named Oscar Morgenstern. And that was really the first sort of laying out of the theory of games. And when he developed that, he based it on the game of poker. And the reason that he did that was he understood that these, particularly in these geopolitical problems, these multiplayer games have two sources of uncertainty that make these games very hard. The first source of uncertainty, of course, is luck. And the second source of uncertainty is this hidden information. So for people who aren't really familiar with game theory, most people are familiar with the classic prisoner's dilemma. And this is a little bit where we start to get into why this looks more like poker, right? Because game theory is based on the game of poker. That's what John von Neumann based it on. And the prisoner's dilemma gets into these kind of poker problems. So the prisoner's dilemma basically is you have two people, let's say Gary and Uriel, and they've committed some sort of crime together. No comment. <laughs> no comment, yes. <laughs> you stole some gum from the candy store and the police have nabbed you. Now, before you've gotten caught, you've made a pact between yourselves that if you ever get nabbed, you're going to keep silent. No ratting the other person out. But now the police catch you and they put you into separate rooms and they offer you a deal that looks something like this. They're going to offer you to confess. If neither of you confesses, you each will get two years. If Gary confesses and Uriel stays silent, Gary will get one year and Uriel will get three years. And if both of you confess, so now there's like no deal to be made, then you get like the max. Okay, so we can set up like different payoff matrices, right? But the thing that's being set up there is that while you do really well, if neither of you confesses, right, you have a motivation to hope that you confess and the other person doesn't. But the problem is that if you both confess, you both get the max and you can't communicate with each other. So this becomes really hard. And lots of people have done work on this, depending on what the payouts are, right? So I can adjust the payouts. I could make it so that if only one of you confesses, you get no time at all. I can do all sorts of things with that payoff matrix. But it becomes a very hard problem in a single game, right? Should you confess or not? And when you start to have it be a repeated game, in other words, I keep putting you in this situation and you have to decide whether you're going to confess or defect, this becomes an even harder problem. And this type of interaction between Putin and the West is actually like a repeated prisoner's dilemma. Is it better to be cooperating? Is it better to defect and go out on your own? And you can kind of map that onto a lot of different problems. And that's basically taken from poker. Let me interfere with this comparison. First of all, I love using prison metaphor, speaking about Putin. Yes. That's where he belongs. But, but I'm not so sure that, you know, we are just going through this cycle, you know, repetitive cycle, discussing Putin's relations with the free world. Yes, Putin used this tactic, and I think it was bluffing all the time, and he succeeded. So it's not that we have too much uncertainty. I think we reached a point where we know the algorithm that he has been using successfully to psychologically dominate the opposition. And while I believe he always had a weak hand, but in poker, you can bluff and raise the stakes. And he did it very successfully, skillfully. And what he saw, same response, folding cards. Once, I think I said after this infamous red line in Syria that Obama broke, so just walked away from his promise to decimate Assad's regime if they would have used chemical weapons. And then, of course, Putin moved in. And I said, it's, they played a poker game and Putin had two pairs, but he bluffed as if he had a row flash. And Obama had a full house, but he flashed in the toilet. And now I think we reached a point where Putin is probably, is going all in because threatening nukes is all in. And it seems that the free world is, um, is not ready to fold the cards, but it's still not ready to call the bluff. 
Yeah, so that's the thing about the prisoner's dilemma and why I said it's a repeated game, right? So when you see the game repeat, you start to be able to build a model of the other person. So I think that you're right, that we do have a very good model of Putin. We kind of understand what his relative strength or weakness is. We understand whether he's aggressive, whether he's strategic or tactical, whether he's willing to bluff how much he's willing to bluff. So I think that we have that model pretty well in the same way that if I play poker against you over and over again, I can build a pretty good model of you. This is kind of the problem that we're facing. And this is where a poker analogy comes in really handy. Occasionally when you play poker, you come across a person that a poker player would call a maniac. So that's actually just like a poker slang for them. And a maniac is someone who's just like really aggressive. So they're always just like betting big, betting big, betting big. And you can model them out pretty quickly, right? Because you understand what the random distribution of the cards are, that he probably has on average a much weaker hand than someone who would normally be willing to bet that big. Okay, so you know that. You know he's got pretty weak cards when he's betting really big. The problem for you as someone who's playing against him is that, first of all, he's really raised the volatility of the game. He's injecting a lot more luck into the game, which makes it hard. And he can blow you up along with himself. So the thing you know about a maniac is eventually the maniac's going to go broke because they keep betting with weak cards, right? But the question for you as their opponent is, can you withstand the destruction to yourself in trying to catch them and trying to be the one who gets them to go broke, right? So you're thinking, oh, should I call with this hand that I might not call somebody else with in this situation? Because somebody else, if they were betting this way, would actually have a really good hand. So this sort of weaker than average hand that I'd be willing to commit this much money to, should I do that knowing that my opponent is supposed to have a pretty weak hand here? But the problem is that even a weak hand can beat me and then I'm going to lose all my money. Now, what a really good player does is essentially waits for the best situation and then pretty much what's it's called, run the nuts into them. They're willing to take on that volatility, right? But in this particular case, one assumes that they don't have all their money on the table, so they don't have what's called scared money. So in other words, they can withstand the volatility that that maniac is injecting into the game so that they can call their bluff. The issue is that it's easier to call the bluff of someone who isn't betting so much, right, just psychologically, because you don't feel like they can take you down with them. And it really takes a pro to put themselves in a situation where they're willing to call those bluffs, knowing that that could sort of take all their money along the way through a stroke of luck. And I think that that's kind of the problem that, from a decision-making standpoint, that the West is facing right now, which is, I think that they're a little bit scared money, right? Because of this problem of, if Putin really is a maniac, what is the probability that nukes would come into play? So I think when you hear all of this talk about, you know, we don't want to start World War III, I feel like some of it is really, it's not we don't want to start World War III, it's that we don't want to start a world war that involves nuclear weapons. So jumping in on this, taking the poker metaphor and translating it to real life, right? I mean, so in the poker metaphor, what you're losing, or or rather what the maniac is winning, is going to be some money. Mm -hmm. But in the real world, what Putin is winning is, well, rather he's killing people, right? What he's winning is the ability to kill people and to Mm -hmm. take away people's freedom and to essentially subjugate an entire nation of 140 million people. And so I guess the question here is, how do we, given his willingness to escalate and his willingness to play incredibly aggressively despite having a very weak hand, how can the free world mitigate that? How can the free world combat that without going broke? Well, I think Gary touched on it. I mean, if you could roll back the clock, it would be super helpful because Mm. when you're playing against somebody like that, you have to be willing to show them that you'll call their bluff before you have so much at stake. So you're trying to show them in all sorts of different ways that you just kind of don't believe them. And you're going to call their bluff at moments when the stakes are lower. The other thing that you can do against them, and this is sort of referring again back to what Gary said previously, is that when I say running the nuts into them, you can kind of sit there because they're not really doing any damage to you. And then when you have a really good hand, you can allow them to 
bet a whole bunch of money and sort of like impale themselves on the stake that you've got set up for them. I think that there were a lot of opportunities previously when the stakes weren't quite so high to call the bluff and actually run our better position into them. Number one, if we could have done that, that would have been really helpful. So one of the things about game theory is that one of the aspects of it is, as I said, they're repeated games and you're signaling over time what you're going to be doing in the future. So Putin has signaled a lot of things over time, but the West has also signaled things back. And unfortunately, the West signals have been a whole lot weaker. Annie, actually, you said something that was, I think, very important. I have been repeating that the West missed many opportunities to stop Putin. And from history, we know that every day, every week, every month, every year, we lost in the past to stop a dictator. So the price always went up. And now you put a very scientific explanation using the poker analogy. If you deal with a maniac, you have to call the bluff at early stage. You don't want to reach a point where the stakes are so high, as now, by the way, when Putin already bluffing with his last card. I'm not sure it's a card or the entire bank, but now we're talking about the nukes. Eight years ago, we had a chance to stop him after Crimea or before he went to Syria at much lower cost because his bluff could be called and he was not yet at the position to raise the stakes so high. So I think that's a great point, and it's, I think that's, that's probably the most effective way to tell people so how many opportunities have been missed. But having said that and recognizing that so many mistakes have been done already, what are our options today? Because we are where we are. Yeah. Obviously, I want to preface this by saying I'm not a Russia expert. I'm a layman when it comes to geopolitics. I'm an expert in the topic, like people on Twitter are an expert in the topic. So let me just preface this by saying that. I think your expertise on the decision-making side of it, though, is is actually what's so interesting because you hear from countless Russia experts, right? But you, what you don't hear from a lot are people with your background talking about this. Yeah. So maybe it'll take someone from outside of that box to give a more interesting and effective approach. Yeah. So basically, in order to think it through, what you have to really do is model out what's the probability that Putin's willing to employ nuclear weapons. Is he really actually going to point a a weapon at us? If he points a weapon right next door, that's obviously bad for Russia. So you have to understand first, and this is where people, I think, kind of get lost in decision making, is they're thinking only about the option that's right in front of them, which is what if Putin uses nuclear weapons? And what they're not thinking about is the alternative, which is what does the world look like if you allow the status quo to continue? So the status quo at the moment is, Putin's invading Ukraine, if he's successful, do we believe after he regroups that he's not going to go into the Baltics, that he's not going to, you know, eventually force a conflict with NATO anyway? And if he forces a conflict with NATO anyway, then aren't you back where you were before? So I think that this has always been the problem is kind of that first piece. And this goes to a bit of decision theory, which comes from something called prospect theory, which was developed by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize, actually, for that. Amos Tversky would have certainly won that along with him had he not died of cancer prior to that Nobel Prize being awarded. And part of prospect theory is something called loss aversion. And what loss aversion basically says is that We're very risk averse when it comes to decisions that might possibly carry a loss and that the prospect of that loss carries much more emotional weight than the prospect of an equivalent gain. Okay, so like in the simplest sense, let's think about it this way. If you went and played blackjack and you won $50, that would feel about as good as losing $25 would. If you won $500, that would feel about as good as as losing $250 would. So in other words, a smaller loss carries the same emotional impact as a bigger gain, right? So they're asymmetrical. So we feel the pain of losses much more. So this creates a decision-making problem when it comes to something like Putin and the threat of nuclear weapons, which is that our decision-making tends to be much more motivated by the fear of that loss that we can see on the path that we would be choosing. So this is one problem, right? So the idea that we might make a decision that would then result in nuclear war is terrifying to us and much more so than the gains we might get from changing course. Okay, so that's problem number one. 
Problem number two is something called omission-commission bias. So omission-commission bias is basically this, that we prefer the status quo, which is sort of thinking about not making a decision, like not changing course, to changing course and getting a bad outcome from it. So the bad outcome that we get from sticking with the status quo doesn't feel as bad to us as the bad outcome that we might occur by actually making some sort of active new decision. So I'll give you like an example of that, right? So when we think about people not vaccinating, part of that is an omission commission problem, right? If I just sort of stick with the natural state of me, it doesn't feel as bad to get a bad outcome than if I switch from my natural state, make a decision to vaccinate and then have a bad outcome from that. That weighs a lot more. And you can see that when people are thinking about that statistically, and you hear some of the adverse reactions from vaccines, and you say, but the adverse reactions of, say, COVID or measles or whatever are much worse, they would prefer to stay in the natural state. So if we were to, for example, create a no-fly zone or in somehow instigate war with Russia, that feels like an active decision, like we're changing the state of the world. And any bad outcome that would occur from that feels much worse to us and will motivate our decision-making more than a bad outcome that might come from staying the course that we're already on. That made a lot of sense. And it's, uh, it's very unfortunate that it makes sense because it explains the psychology of inaction of U.S. administration that is trying to, as they say, avoid military confrontation with Russia while they can answer how you can reconcile their unwillingness to take even the minimal risk. I believe it's the risk is minimum because I, I don't believe there will be many of any Russian pilots willing to sacrifice their lives for Putin's geopolitical ambitions because flying in the skies of Ukraine and facing NATO planes, it's, it's as good as just, you know, as committing suicide. They know that. So how this inaction in terms of no-fly zone in Ukrainian sky can be reconciled with the reassurances for Baltic countries or Poland that in any case would be fighting for them and will defend, as Biden said, every inch of NATO territory. Because it will be defending these territories in case of this tragic development against the same Russia, the same nuclear power, but on the Putin terms already. So you are actually giving excellent explanation. So how this, these two things are just being balanced or imbalanced yeah, in their minds. Yeah. And I'd like to hear more about it. Yeah. So basically, you know, this is something that I've talked to Richard Thaler about quite a bit, another Nobel laureate in economics who thinks in this space as well, and has really thought about these problems pretty deeply, that for us to be willing to change course because of all of the forces that sort of work against wanting to change course, generally, we won't do it until it's no longer a decision. So we'll only do it at the point that it's not a choice. I'll give you a super simple example. There are a whole bunch of stories of people climbing Everest. And on Everest, they have turnaround times. So like the turnaround time on summit day will be 1 p.m. What that means is that you have to be at a certain place by 1 p.m. or you must turn around because if you don't and you continue on to the summit past 1 p.m., on your way down, you'll be descending in darkness, which you can't do. But we know that people ignore those turnaround times all the time. Why? Well, because they're wondering, like, what if? Well, I'm continuing up the mountain. Like, what if? What if I had made it? Right? And they don't want to live with that sort of counterfactual uncertainty of what would have happened if I had kept going. Now, when do they actually turn around? When it's no longer a decision, right? Like the snowstorm is already in. Or it's now four o'clock and you're up on the summit and you're out of oxygen. Well, now we're totally fine with turning around, right? Because it doesn't feel like we've made the choice to change course. And this is, you can see this just in something as simple as like somebody quitting their job, right? You'll go and they'll say, I'm so miserable. It's so awful there. I hate my job. And I'm thinking about quitting. I'm trying to decide whether I should keep this job or not. And then you see them a few weeks later and you say, well, what did you decide? And they say, I'm not ready to make a decision yet. And of course, that doesn't even make any sense because what that means is that they did make a decision and they made a decision to stay in the job that they're in. When do they finally quit? Only when it's totally unbearable. Only when they have to. And this tends to be true of relationships. It tends to be true of pretty much anything, right? Is that the point that we actually are willing to quit 
the point that we're actually willing to change course and do something new and try something different than what the status quo is in the world right now is when we're already at the edge of the abyss or sometimes when we've already fallen into it. So let's think about this from the standpoint of what's going on right now. Well, we know that we have a mutual defense agreement with NATO. So if Russia now endangers a NATO country, we no longer have a choice. It is no longer our decision. It is not an active choice on our part. We had no say in the matter. There is a treaty. So now if we end up in a really bad situation, like a World War III or Putin sends off a nuke, it's like, well, we don't bear responsibility for that because Putin's the one who caused us to do that. Now, it's a little weird, right? Because it's sort of like the person who's in the terrible job with the toxic boss who's completely miserable, who's saying, I'm not ready to make a decision now, which is, of course, an active decision to stay in the job. And you're saying, but all sorts of terrible things are happening in your life right now. But they would prefer to get fired before actually walking away themselves. And that's a little bit where we are right now. I mean, in my opinion, if I think about it from a decision-making framework. You know, and Annie, I think this proved out my original idea that it could be useful to have somebody who's not a Russia expert, but who is a decision scientist talk about something like this. Because the way that you've described the psychology behind the leadership of the free world, I, I think anyone can understand. It's exactly the same logic. And I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you have... Right now, getting involved for Western countries means making an active choice. We have to actually get involved. We have to take a risk, even if it's a minimal risk, relatively speaking, right? It means facilitating the transfer of MiG-29s from Poland to Ukraine, right? The risk is not huge, but it's still an active choice. Whereas if we don't do anything but allow Putin to ultimately feel emboldened, continue to feel emboldened, and ultimately attack a Western nation that's in NATO, well... Then it's like we got fired from our bad job. Yeah, except the consequence is much worse. Well, well, of course, you know, and I just want to say, like, again, I'm not a geopolitical expert, right? Obviously, I'm a big supporter of liberal democracies. I think that they should exist all over the world. I think dictators are really bad. I don't have access to the intelligence. So I can't say with any certainty or am I purporting what the right choice is to do here. I'm just talking about what are the psychological and cognitive forces in play here behind how do you actually navigate this kind of decision? Eddie, you just said two or three times, experts, experts, experts. Uh, who are these experts? They're the people who have gotten Putin wrong at every turn and all the way up to his invasion two weeks ago. And they have been telling us, you know, about the right strategy, but their caution and their counsel and deals, I believe, created this slaughter. And if we keep following their advice, it can only make things worse. So I think it's very important to understand the psychology of decision-making from both sides. And I'm not sure our friends in Ukraine who are now heroically fighting uh, Putin's war machine, they will be very happy listening to your analysis just because it it confirms their, their worst fears that they are dealing with a free world that is led by people who are not willing to make decisions. They used to lead from behind, and that's not the way to oppose brutal dictatorship like Vladimir Putin's. So, Annie, I want to be explicit here. Based on the analysis that you just described, right, and the dangers of indecision, the implication of that analysis utilized within the geopolitical context of Putin's invasion of Ukraine is that the West recognizing the dangers of the kind of psychological phenomena that you described should be willing to check those kind of predilections, right? The predilection to not make a decision, to check that and therefore be much more willing to make an active decision and get involved in a way that the West has so far been hesitant to do. Is that a fair description of, of yeah, the Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, these things are relatively hard to overcome. And there's also, you know, unfortunately, political implications in terms of support from your constituents, right? So that's part of a democracy is support from your constituents, obviously. 
Putin doesn't care about that. Well, I understand, but I'm just, you know, I mean, this is, again, it's a, For we have to. It's a vast multiplayer game. So the issue is that I think that in general, people don't actually think about inaction as an active decision to stay with the status quo. It's built into our laws. So let's imagine this, right? Let's imagine that I'm walking along the street and I see someone stabbing someone to death. And let's also imagine that I know that I could stop that person from doing that without injury to myself. And I'm certain of that. It's 100% that I could stop that person from killing the other person and I could remain unscathed. If I continue to walk by, I am in no legal trouble whatsoever. Now, when you think about it, like obviously knowing that I could stop that with no injury to myself, no skin off my back, feels like when you actually step back from that, the same is very similar to the person who's actually stabbing the victim. But it's not the way our minds process it, right? So in action, the failure to act feels very different to us than action. And this comes down to like, there's a, some, a moral philosophy problem called the trolley problem, which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with. And it's a similar type of problem, right? So there's different versions of it, but basically the classic one is there's a trolley coming down a track. You see five workers standing on the track. Those five people are certain to die if the trolley continues down that track, but there's a lever you can pull. And if you pull the lever, then the trolley will be diverted onto a different track where there is only one worker. And the question is, do you pull the lever? Now, if you think about it just from a straight utility framework, right? In one case, five people die. In the other case, one person dies. So when you think about it that way, you know, you would be a lever puller, right? But a lot of people refuse to pull the lever, right? So I think it's something like 50% of people won't pull the lever. I, I may be wrong on that, but it's, it's a significant number. Don't pull the lever, but then you can actually make it worse. And you say, what if you're standing on a bridge and you see a trolley coming and you see that there's five workers on the track and there's someone next to you with like a really heavy backpack on and if I push that person off the bridge onto the track, the trolley will hit that one person and the five people will be saved. Will you push the person off the bridge? And basically everybody says no there, right? Even though you're exchanging one life for five, this is an interesting problem in moral philosophy. And it's a little bit where we are now, which is, am I going to create an action that might do some harm? Or am I going to allow the trolley to continue down the way? Now, the reason why we know this is kind of like, it's a little weird is that someone actually did a study where they said, what if it's a robot standing by the lever? So it's a robot. So it's no longer a human standing by the lever. It's just a robot. Should the algorithm tell the robot to pull the lever or not? And if the robot doesn't pull the lever, people get really upset, even if they themselves wouldn't pull the lever. Actually, Eddie, this is, is while you were talking about this classical problem. So I thought about the movie, actually, so recently, but it's old. It's about seven, eight years old called Eye in the Sky. It's a very similar dilemma. So it's about uh, British intelligence uh, chasing terrorists in Africa, I think in Kenya. And they located the, the group in the building and they have a drone. They're ready to strike. And they missed this moment. They moved to another location, to a neighborhood controlled by, by Al-Shabaab uh, terrorist group. And again, they just put it, this little camera. They actually indicated that it's there inside. And moreover, they're preparing suicide bombers. So mm -hmm. just, they could see they, on the screen that they just put this at the West there and uh, they, they're ready to go. And there will be definitely dozens of people killed. They're ready, but there's a problem. Just in front of the building, there's a little girl selling bread. Right. I think it's the best, you know, demonstration of, of this phenomenon. And you have, you know, the ministers and then the prime minister and they're all trying to actually make a decision and it's, and the military that trying to push them, they're trying to downgrade the, the percentage. So it's, the, what are the chances that girl will be hit? You should push it be below 50% if you hit here or there. But it's a great movie because it's it's the best illustration of, of your stories. Yeah, it's, you it's, it's far really more practical. It. This is not you pushing. It's somehow, it's, it's a decision yes, it's to actually to push the button and it will, the, 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 it's not you, you know, basically killing the person. And I think we are just, we're dealing now with a similar situation on a much bigger scale. So because oh, exactly. it's, it's the same now you have, yeah, it's the, yeah, you have 
every every minute we can we can see these horrible videos from Ukraine, and then and and then there's the outcry both in Ukraine and outside of Ukraine. Do something about it, and we know we can do this. But back to this, back to square one. So if if um, if NATO uh, imposes snowfly zone, then it may end up with God knows you know what. Uh, uh, and uh, it's uh, better to keep status quo, though I'm not f- comfortable calling it status quo because every time when just innocent people being killed, I think we're losing something. So that's, that's I wouldn't Well, no, of course, there, what, what, I mean by, what I mean by... Uh, those maybe geopolitical status quo. Right, the political status quo. That's what I mean. Obviously, it's not. it sh- should never be acceptable as a status quo that like maternity hospitals are being bombed. What I'm saying is from, from the political standpoint of are you acting to intervene or not, the status quo is that you're not intervening, right? And no. shifting from the status quo would be to intervene. And even when we go back to the trolley problem, like when you talk about, okay, but what if it's a little girl? There's all sorts of things I can do to make it less likely that you'd be willing to pull the lever. So one thing I can do is I can increase the scale. So I can say, what if there's 5 million people on the one track, but there's a million people on the track that you're going to pull the lever and, and kill? And notice that that feels emotionally very different to you, even though the ratio is the same. So once I increase the scale of the people, or it's a child on the track, or an animal, or, you know, I can do all sorts of things to manipulate that. And when you start to get to scale on these things, you know, these decisions become very murky. And it's not agreed upon. And not everybody's utilitarian or thinks that you know, that's the way that you're supposed to approach these types of decisions. Yeah, but the, you know, the tragedy that in, in, in the real life, as now, we're dealing with people who have no problems of that type. Well, yes. They, can, it is, is they, they don't care. One person, five, one no. million. So is this is, no. they kill and they don't, they don't bother just to, to think about people they kill. Or they give orders to kill others. So all these Russian pilots that bombed uh, hospitals and kindergartens, they got orders from their superiors. And their superiors got orders from Putin. And I'm not sure they will understand, you know, the nature of our conversation. So the question is, can we deal with them by being so sensitive, by spending endless hours debating this trolley problem while we're dealing with those who are willing to kill with no reservations? Let's reframe that question a little bit, because what I find really interesting here is Putin is is one man, but of course he has behind him a war machine. He has a country of 140 million people, oligarchs. He has all of this apparatus behind him. So I suppose part of the question here is how do we change the incentive structure or is there a way to change the incentive structure for some combination or subset of that structure behind Putin, whatever that might be. So in other words, like you could almost segment those groups, like, is there a way to change the incentive structure for Russian soldiers, for Russian pilots, for the general public, for oligarchs, for politicians? And then you try to find some combination of people for whom you can change that incentive structure and see if that has an impact. And, you know, we've seen Ukraine doing this to some extent when they offered roughly the equivalent of $50,000 for any Russian soldier who would surrender to them. Right. So they tried to change that incentive structure for those soldiers. So, Annie, I wonder if when we're thinking about the decision making strategy, not necessarily of the very, very tippy top leaders, but of kind of everybody else, what can we do to change their incentive structure? Well, I mean, I, I think part of it is, look, and I think that this actually goes all the way up to Putin's initial decision making, but without free flowing information, it becomes very difficult to change the incentive structure. From the standpoint of the Russian population, from the standpoint of the army, um, they would actually have to understand that what they're being told is not true. You know, and this is part of the problem with dictatorships, right, is that they create bubbles, information bubbles. And we've seen, as this has been going on, Putin cutting off more and more sources of information to the public. So I think that we've all heard stories of people who are in Ukraine calling their parents and their parents insisting that there's Nazis in Ukraine and this is a necessary war and so on and so forth in terms of all the propaganda. Their parents in Russia. Yeah, their parents in Russia. Yeah, thank you. So you have to break through the information bubble. And I think that there's an interesting example of this, and I may butcher this a little bit, but 
I think it was about 15 years ago or so, 10 or 15 years ago, you know, China, you know, was making sure that their internet was kind of a bubble. So they sort of created what I kind of think about as an internet Maginot line. So they were, they were stopping any information coming in from the outside. So this is now just a sort of a closed system. The problem was that they did not stop information sharing from within. So as I recall, and again, I'm probably going to butcher this a little bit, there had been a problem with just corruption in terms of construction in China. And there were a lot of like shoddily built buildings because there was all sorts of graft and, you know, siphoning off money from those projects. And so there were a lot of buildings that were really unsafe. And this had been going on for a long time in China. But now there's like this internet that China thinks they've made safe because nothing can get in from the outside. But again, people can communicate to each other. And there was something that happened. I think it was like a school or a hospital that collapsed because of the graft. And the Chinese citizens shared that amongst themselves. So in that particular case, the truth ended up getting shared and actually changed the way that the Chinese citizens thought about construction and kind of exposed the corruption that was going on. And I think that actually ended up changing some things because there was some demand from the population. So it sounds like essentially what you're saying is a significant part of shifting the decision calculus of these folks is to try to pierce the information bubble, try to change their perspective. Which would have been good for Putin in the first place, because part of the problem with Putin in the first place is that if you are going to make good decisions, you have to have dissenting voices. You have to have different perspectives. So we all, to some extent, live in our own perspectives. It's called the inside view, the way that we view the world, our own biases, what we want to be true of the world. We can see this when people wonder, for example, how somebody could believe in QAnon. Well, they're kind of in their own little information bubble, and they're only talking to people who confirm what they believe. And when they see information that disconfirms it, they think it's coming from the deep state, so on and so forth. So they're sort of creating their own information bubble. Now, what happens to people who actually leave Q is they get exposed to an outside perspective in some way that's allowed to pierce that veil, right? Now, that's obviously an extreme case, but for all of us, a little bit, we're sort of in our own cult in that way. And it's a cult of our own beliefs and, and the way that we model the world and the way that we make great decisions. And this is whether you're a CEO or just a student or even a politician or whoever, is to make sure you have lots of people who are not yes men around you. Lots of people who are offering up their unvarnished opinion to give you a different perspective. Because when you're trying to get out of what's called the inside view, you want to get to the perspective of the way that other people might model the world. Now let's think about the problem with a dictatorship. By definition, there are no dissenting voices. By definition, you're confirming the dictator's point of view. And what happens is that then becomes circular and your point of view gets strengthened. And we've seen cases of that, just like in American corporations, where there's a strong CEO who kind of fires anybody who disagrees with them. And you know what happens to those businesses, they crater because they end up making really bad decisions. Now, let's take that to a geopolitical scale with really, really high stakes consequences, which is you know, the lives of other human beings. And we can see the result of not allowing any type of dissenting voice around you. So what do you have to create? Well, first of all, you have to pierce the information bubble for the population so that they themselves can dissent. And then you have to figure out some sort of pressure on the people that surround Putin to get them to be willing to dissent and actually speak up. Now, that's an issue of being able to make the stakes right right? You have to make it a better choice for them to dissent than whatever Putin might be threatening against them. Or you have to get numbers, right? You have to get the whole Russian population to go out and take to the streets. That's another way to do it. Andy, another brilliant point. And uh, I'm thinking now, just listening to your explanations, is that these arguments should be added to to RDI's um, front lines uh, um, of freedom um, course, because that's that's the way to explain in in layman terms, so why dictatorships are not functioning well in the twenty first right. century. It's even before, but now it's very important to destroy this information bubble, which exists not only in, in Russia or in, in undemocratic world. Unfortunately, we have this ideological bubble even in the United States, yep. where so many young people think that communism was good. And democracy is, is okay, it's fine, but we don't need it necessarily. 
So uh, translating translating the concept of democracy and and and, yeah. and value of democratic institutions into decision making process that could affect lives of ordinary people, I think that could be a, a great help. That's our great addition to the idea of communicating to young audience, especially young audience, the value of democratic institutions and also the opposite, the inevitable failure That's right. of your enterprise, of your uh, state-run affairs, if you don't have these descending voices and the never-ending exchange of ideas. Many of them could be wrong. But it's the act of exploring them yeah. that, that is yeah. so important. I mean, you can kind of think about it this way it, it, in the simplest sense, right? Any decision that you make is a forecast, yeah. right? Because if I'm making a decision, what I'm doing is forecasting something about the future. This particular option that I'm thinking about choosing is going to cause me to gain ground toward my goal, given the resources that I have more than other options that I might choose. What that means is that when I'm considering a particular option, forecasting what do I think the possible outcomes are that I might observe, what are the probabilities of each of those outcomes, and what are the payoffs to each of those outcomes. Okay, Okay, so that's what I'm trying to think about. Like, how much ground am I going to gain? What's the probability that I'll observe this particular outcome that's going to cause me to gain this particular ground or lose this particular ground? And that's what I'm trying to do. That's what I'm thinking about. Now, here's the problem, right, is that I only have access to the knowledge and the facts that I have access to. And I only have access to the way that I personally have modeled the world. And I only have access to my own experiences. So when I'm trying to think about, well, what do I think the chances of different things occurring? I'm kind of trapped in my own information bubble, which is just my own head, right? My own view, my own perspective of the world, right? And that can be affected by all sorts of things. Like in the simplest sense, if something is more vivid for me to recall, And that could be because I experienced it more or it's more vivid because it caught my attention more. And I'm trying to forecast what the probability of that is. My forecast will be off because of something called availability bias. And availability bias is just really simple. Like when you ask people to forecast the chances that an American dies in a terrorist attack, people really forecast that way too high. And the question is, well, why do they do that? Well, because of the information that they're getting access to, which is, you know, when somebody drowns in a bathtub, it's not on CNN. But when there's a terrorist act, it's wall-to-wall coverage for days. So we think it's more frequent than it actually is. So it actually makes our forecast bad. So how can I actually fix that? Only two ways. I can go and find out. I can look it up and say, well, what's what's called the base rate? And a base rate is just how often does this thing actually happen in the world, like independent of my own experience. That's one thing that I can go look at. Right. So if I want to know what's the probability that I would get in a car accident anytime that I get in my car, I can go look up what the chances are of anybody, you know, getting in a car accident. Like how frequently do those happen? Like as an example, or if I were opening a restaurant and I wanted to know what's the probability that I fail in the first year, I could go look up the stats for the area that I'm opening the restaurant in and I could see, you know, oh, 40 percent of restaurants fail in the first year or whatever. Right. So that's going to give me just sort of like what's statistically true of the world. But the other thing that I can do is I can go say, hey, Gary, you're an expert in restaurants. What do you think my chances are of having opening a successful restaurant in this area? Right. And I can get your perspective. Now, what that does is it allows me to walk around that decision to get a 360 view of that decision because I'm actually finding out how other people view the situation that I'm considering. And that's going to improve my forecasting. Right. So we've heard things, just as an example, that Putin was forecasting that he would decapitate the government, Zelensky would flee, and he would have that in three days. And my question is did anybody disagree? Right. When he was discussing this with his advisors, did anybody dare say, well, I'm not sure about that? Like our military is in kind of disrepair and all the tires are failing, and we're having to wait till after the Olympics, and there's going to be mud, and there's Zelensky fellow, he actually seems to be very patriotic, and it's a pretty big country, and, you know, all the things maybe that would cause you to have a different perspective on how easy it would be to roll through that country. Maybe Putin was saying, I think that NATO is a complete mess, and they're not going to be able to come together on this, and America is so incredibly divided, 
They're not going to be united on the topic and half of the country is going to support me and whatever his forecast might be. I mean, I'm just making this stuff up, right? But if we were to take a guess at what was Putin forecasting, I think a lot of that would be in there, right? NATO's broken. America's broken. The world isn't going to come together. They're not going to dare cut themselves off from oil. They're not going to cut me off from SWIFT. Whatever those forecasts were, the question is, was there pushback? Was somebody else saying that I have a different perspective? And if I had to take a a guess, an educated guess, I think that that's the problem with a dictatorship in the first place. Ali, I couldn't agree more. I don't think anybody dared to challenge Putin because for him, Ukraine was an obsession and he always wanted to destroy it. And when he made a decision, uh, it's they, they could be some sort of recommendations how to do it better, but I think nobody advised him against it. And by the way, I agree with your analysis that many of the factors that he took into consideration, they were correct because he's experienced from previous games, poker games, with Western leaders, proved that uh, he could take huge risk, bluff, and still win. But now, just to go back to the original uh, idea of the program, and uh, so a big question. Now, with all you know now, with all you said about Putin, so it's de- describing him as a maniac poker player in geopolitical casino. Now, I think the audience wants to hear your professional advice. Will you impose, would you impose no fly zone on Ukraine? Yes or no? So I'm going to go back to what I said before, right, which is I see a lot of experts, people who actually are experts on this topic, and I'm reading a lot of experts, right? And some of those experts have the perspective that you ought not to do that, okay? And when I look at what they're saying, I can understand why they're making that recommendation, right? And then I see experts saying you ought to do that. And I totally understand what their recommendation is as well. Right. So the the problem for me, and this sort of comes to this issue, right, which is one of the things that I really try to live my life by is that when I don't know enough to make a good decision about it, I'm trying not to make a decision. What I'll offer here very quickly, and it's the choice is not only no fly zone or no no fly zone, right? There's there's a number of steps in between where Western leaders could be a lot more aggressive without taking that final step of having Western pilots shoot down Russian pilots. Yeah, I mean, what what I would do is I would try to sort of accomplish the same thing, but de-risk it, right? So the the question for me would be: Is there a way to create air superiority for Ukraine without actually having a no-fly zone, right? So I'm looking for a creative alternative here um, where you accomplish the same thing as a no-fly zone um, without the problems that come from that, right? Uh, Which I think somewhat are political in terms of uh, certain people thinking that we were actually the provokers. Um, And that would be the thing that I would be mainly concerned about right? Is the, because the thing is that in the end, I think the goal is to get rid of Putin, right? So the worry that I have on a no-fly zone is that it gives Putin a story about why, you know, the West is against us, and then all of a sudden he can galvanize his power in Russia. That's a little bit what I'm worried about there. So it's just a separate thing. Yeah. So the answer is, I would like, I would try to find a creative alternative that creates a no-fly zone without that story being able to be told. With that, I want to say, Annie, thank you. This has been, I think, a truly unique conversation. It's not often that I think people talk about these types of problems and these types of crises from the perspective of a purely psychological and decision-making point of view, which I think is actually incredibly useful. And so I want to thank you for taking the time to join us today. I want to remind our listeners that at 11 a.m. on Saturday, we'll be hosting the Ukrainian foreign minister, as well as Ukrainian soldiers from the front lines and a host of other VIPs. It'll be a fascinating conversation from a much more geopolitical and current events lens than this one. And I hope that once you listen to this, you'll be able to leverage some of the things that you heard here today and use them as you think about some of the things that Foreign Minister Kuleba says. So thank you, Annie, and I look forward to following this up in the near future. Thank you both. Well, thank you for having me for such a lively conversation. Yes, thank you very much, Annie.